1: plushcare.com/weightloss
2: Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter.
3: Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast. Today we're talking about sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may also hurt. Now many of you who have osteoarthritis have heard lots and lots of different descriptors for this disease, including things like bone on bone, wear and tear, degenerative, all of those terms are incredibly inaccurate and more importantly, really unhelpful. So today we're digging into that topic a little bit more, primarily because the way in which people talk about their osteoarthritis can vary a lot, and can often be reflected in their attitudes towards health and healthcare. This can provide great insight into what the condition means to patients, but ultimately also how they're able to cope and manage with their symptoms. Using terms like wear and tear or worn out can often discourage people with osteoarthritis to be actively involved in the management of their condition. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Samantha Bunsley who joins us to talk on this episode of Joint Action and discuss how osteoarthritis communication occurs, particularly between patients and clinicians, but probably as importantly, how that ultimately affects their beliefs, their behavior, and their management choices. Now, Sam Bonsley is a physiotherapist who received her PhD in 2016 from the School of Physiotherapy and Exercise Science at Curtin University in Western Australia. In her PhD, she developed methodological expertise in qualitative research and content expertise in health beliefs, behavior, and clinical communication. Sam is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne, the Department of Surgery at St. Vincent's Hospital, leading qualitative research within the NHMRC Center of Research Excellence in total joint replacement specifically optimizing outcomes equity cost effectiveness and patient selection hi sam and welcome to the show
4: thanks for having me david
3: oh it's absolutely our pleasure it's a conversation i've been meaning to have for a long while and i'm really hoping that the listeners get as much out of it as i'm anticipating doing before we get into the main content though which is obviously around how communication with patients can really matter, both as far as their understanding of disease and its management. Mm -hmm. I just wanna spend a little bit more time getting to know you, obviously selfishly for myself, but hopefully also so the listeners know who you are and where you're coming from. But in the first instance, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like?
4: Sure. So um, as you would have mentioned in the intro, I'm a, a physio. So I'm a physiotherapist. I originally trained at um, Otago University in New Zealand. So I'm sort of a Kiwi, half Kiwi, half Aussie. I worked clinically for around 10 years um, as a physio before doing my PhD. And like when I was working clinically, uh, the part of the job that I really, really loved was listening to the patient's stories. So really everyone has a story to tell about the journey that... that brought them to the the clinic door. And I think the physio has a really unique role as a healthcare professional. We typically have a lot more time than a GP, a physician or surgeon to sit down with our patients and to really understand how they're feeling and what they're they're thinking. And I found that um, as a physio, uh, just giving the patient opportunity to, to tell the story and actively listening to how they made sense of their situation, helping them to fill in those gaps in their understanding seemed to really help people. So this is the part that I was really passionate about um, clinically. I went on to do a PhD where I guess I channeled this, this some of these skills and interests into a project that was looking at the beliefs underlying uh, behavior in people with persistent musculoskeletal pain, as the case may be in chronic back pain. And back pain, although back pain is an interesting model to look at, I guess, because there is um, quite a lot of evidence to say that the pain and disability that people experience with low back pain is really poorly correlated or associated with the findings that we see on their imaging. So pain and disability that people are experiencing both at the present time and into the future is more strongly predicted by what they believe about their low back pain than any sort of pathoanatomical changes that they might have on x-ray or MRI, for example. Um, the seminal sort of work in that area um, at the time was a fear avoidance, what well, still is, the fear avoidance model of low back pain, which was published in around 2000, which uh, describes how the interpretation of pain as a sign of threat, damage is occurring to, to the spine, makes people fearful of activities that they, they associate with pain. And this can lead to fear avoidance behavior. So that might be the outright avoidance of activities that they associate with threat. Um, or the threat of pain, but it can also be guarding and bracing behaviors. So things like clenching muscles and stiffening their back when they need to bend, for example. And these behaviors are problematic because when we alter the way we move, this can be a source of nociception or a source of pain itself, but also because people can then become less physically active, which isn't good for our general health. People can start avoiding the things that they really love, which is detrimental to their, their mental health as well. So in my PhD, I adopted this sort of social perspective of low back pain. I was using qualitative research methods, so interview methods, to find out why people perceived their pain as being threatening. So I was really interested in what people believed about their back pain and, and where these beliefs came from. And one of the outcomes of that work was a framework to help clinicians assess and sort of target some of the beliefs that were driving unhelpful behaviors in, in people with back pain and, and persistent musculoskeletal pain. Um, more broadly as I've applied it later on and I guess that we'll come back to that no doubt later in the discussion and it's a bit of a long introduction but I think it gives you some background to tell you a little bit about the lens I guess or perspective I bring to the work that I'm currently doing in osteoarthritis.
3: That's really helpful Sam and just to expand a little bit more on I guess what work are you currently doing in osteoarthritis and what does a typical day look like for you?
4: Sure. So maybe I'll I'll start with a typical day, maybe. I have a bit of an unusual work arrangement, or it used to be seen as unusual pre-COVID in that I work remotely to my team. So I have a full-time research position as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne, but I'm physically based up in Queensland. So if people are overseas, was that 2,000 kilometers away or, or something, David? Yep. Um, So I still have a team of of PhDs, um, of research assistants, and I have various projects on the go, um, but I manage everything remotely. And part of what makes that, that arrangement possible is the type of research I'm doing. So I mentioned that I use qualitative research methods. So my data is collected through interviews, through video recordings of clinical encounters, for example. And I'd say a typical day is probably similar to that of any other research academic. I meet with my wonderful PhD students. I manage the projects that are currently underway. I sit on a few committees and things, try to make time to read and write. Um, But I guess because I'm not not working clinically anymore, but I do spend a lot of time talking to patients and clinicians for my research projects. So I still feel like I'm connected to the clinic, even though I'm, I'm not working
3: clinically anymore. Brilliant. Now, I know I'm harking back to something that's probably completely tangential to what we're about to talk about today, but were you born in New Zealand? And where did you grow up?
4: Oh no, I was, um, I was born in Hong Kong, actually, and I, so I grew up in Hong Kong and Malaysia before moving to, to New Zealand. I did all my high school and, and university in New Zealand, but my parents are Aussies, so I was a sort of displaced Aussie, I guess, or child of the world, I don't know, but I've lived in lots of different places, moved around lots, so I have called Australia home for the last 12 years.
3: But you had an itinerant youth, which presumably led to a diverse range of interests, is that right?
4: I think so. Yes, yeah. I think some of the skills that I probably bring to my research as far as, I guess, being open minded or, or being quite able to talk to a range of different people and um, all those sort of things. I think that I, I, I probably got from growing up in lots of different places and having those different experiences.
3: Again, completely tangential, but I'm originally a Kiwi as well. So we have that uh, ah, a little bit okay. in common. But. I digress.
4: I didn't know that. <laughs>
3: it's, it's, it's all good. Now, outside of your day job in Brisbane, what is it that you like to do?
4: I love bushwalking. I would say I have a very unusual skill of being a very talented koala spotter. So I go for walks in the forest near our house and it's um, I always manage to spot a koala or two. Maybe I'm too busy looking up all the time with my head in the clouds, but that's something I love to do. And whenever possible, I like we've got a little um, camper van, I think I've mentioned to you before, David, and I love to spend time going out bush with, with my husband and we have got a couple of kids. So that's where I ideally would be, sitting in my little camper van in the bush.
3: Wonderful. What's the f- most enjoyable destination you've been to in the camper van?
4: Oh, up here in Queensland, my favourite spot is Stanthorpe and Girrawin National Park, which is a beautiful um, national park in the Granite Belt, about three hours out of Brisbane. It's the coldest point in Queensland, which seems a bit strange for somebody in Queensland that would like to go to the coldest spot rather than the beaches, but it is just beautiful. Vineyards, fruit vines, just beautiful.
3: Spectacular. Now, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be?
4: My first um, word would be, I guess, more of an aspirational trait, maybe more than anything else, but I really do strive. At the moment, I'm on a bit of a kindness mission I think when we're time poor I really feel that kindness gets pushed to the side Um, as an academic I think peer review is a really good example of this when we scribble quick review on a manuscript and we don't necessarily mean to come across as abrupt or unkind but sometimes it's perceived this way and I think sometimes a few extra seconds to soften our tone and come across more encouraging can really go a long way Emailing's the same, and from my observations of clinical encounters, I think the same can be said for a bit of time for health clinicians sometimes interacting with patients, and sometimes in our busy lives more broadly. I think we just we forget kindness. So I, I like to think of myself as as, yeah, kind, but maybe it's always aspiring to be more kind. I guess.
3: Oh well, I I hope I can take a leaf out of your book because I think you do it tremendously well.
4: Very kind. Uh, what would my, my second trait is probably I, I'm I think I'm a good listener and I must say I'm much more comfortable being in your seat than mine, David. I'd much feel much more comfortable doing the interviewing and listening rather than doing the talking. I guess I mentioned I'm also I, I think of myself as open-minded to the perspectives of the others. I really find it an interesting cognitive exercise almost or challenge to flip thinking around and see things from a different perspective. And I think those probably, those last traits make me quite well suited to the sort of research that, that I do, um, the, the qualitative work that I do. Uh, my fourth word is ambitious. Um, I think I'm ambitious in the sort of projects and the research that I do. I'm ambitious for my research career. Um, I'm ambitious in life more broadly, I would say. And my fifth one is maybe a bit more negative, And it's maybe just a reflection of where I am speaking with you at this point in time um, this morning is that I'm a terrible technophobe. I really don't like technology. And last night I had a big IT fail and it's been making me feel a bit stressed. So technophobe would be my fifth word.
3: Oh, well, the, the middle three qualities at least are fantastic qualities to have from a research perspective. And I'm I'm sure the last one is something that I share and I'm sure, sure many other people who do research, don't necessarily have a great affinity with technology, but I think whether we like it or not, it's something that is pretty essential.
4: We don't have much choice, no. Mm.
3: All right. Now, Sam, as you being the guru and I'm being the one who's interviewing you about a topic which is so, so important to our listeners, I think we might try and get into the main content and I guess just try to create a little background knowledge as to what communication patterns there are and what problems we have, or rather you have perceived from the work that you've done. Now, the way people speak about their health is important in shaping and reflecting their experiences and attitudes to health, illness, and health care. But what are some of the common things that you found in the research that you've done that patients say when they speak about their osteoarthritis?
4: Well, maybe I'll start by talking about one of the first studies I did as, as a postdoc, where we investigate the pathways to joint replacement surgery through interviews with people on the waiting list for joint replacement. So we were interested in their stories to how they got onto that waiting list. Now, the people in our sample that we spoke to reported a really low uptake of non-surgical care for their osteoarthritis. Um, so often they got right through to the waiting list for surgery without having properly or sometimes at all engaged in any non-surgical care. So a lot of them had never tried an exercise intervention, had never visited a physiotherapist, had never engaged in any weight loss intervention. So they were the, the typical things that we were looking at in that study. And, and that really supports other findings from studies and other Australian groups have done where they've seen that the, the most common GP referral for someone with osteoarthritis is to an orthopedic surgeon rather than to an allied health professional. But what our study... Added to our understanding, I guess, was that the treatment choices amongst the sample of people we spoke to seemed to be driven, at least, at least in part, by the misconceptions around osteoarthritis. So we documented, I guess, five common myths or, or misconceptions amongst the sample, and they were that pain is a sign that damage is occurring to the joint, that osteoarthritis is always caused by wear and tear, that loading a worn out joint is dangerous for the joint surfaces, that physio and exercise can't replace worn out cartilage. So there's no point in doing it. And that a joint replacement is the only way to fix osteoarthritis and and to cure pain. So I guess to put this in sort of a a narrative, I guess, because people believed that they had bone on bone changes in their joint. So they believed they had no more cartilage in their joint. And that this was because of wear and tear over the years of loading that joint, they avoided the activities that they felt would increase the loading, and cause further damage to that joint. And really, we can think of this as a very logical response. If you believe that you will damage a joint by loading it, it's a logical thing to do to avoid loading it. So among the people we, we talked to, there also seemed to be a rather, I guess, well, I was surprised, I guess, at the, the uptake of non-evidence-based interventions, things like some dietary supplements. People had heard that certain things that they could add to their diet could help restore joint cartilage, Um, So again, this seemed like a logical option based on their understanding of their symptoms. How can I rebuild my cartilage? And people ultimately felt that a joint replacement was really the only solution to fix osteoarthritis and cure their pain. So as soon as they had heard the words wear and tear or bone on bone, they perceived that a joint replacement was going to be inevitable. And these sort of misconceptions appeared to have a really devastating consequence for some people. So one uh, lady we talked to, she didn't realize she had knee osteoarthritis until her, um went to see her GP and was referred to a scan for a different reason and was told that sort of incidental findings that she had wear and tear consistent with osteoarthritis in her knee. She told us that she'd watched family members suffer with osteoarthritis and was really afraid of going down the same route so she made really quite substantial changes in her life she, she cut down exercising she avoided things like squatting and taking the stairs things that she thought you know activities she thought that would increase loading through that knee when she went back to her gp a few years later for a follow-up scan her knee was in her words now bone on bone so there had been a progressive degeneration in, in that cartilage in her knee over time. And she felt that a knee replacement at that point was going to be inevitable. But she was told that she was too young for a joint replacement. And so she she just waited it out for the next few years, essentially. She stopped doing the things she loved. She was getting depressed. Um, She was stressed about her financial situation. She wasn't sleeping well. And sort of this went on for years until she finally felt that she was old enough and she asked for a referral to to the orthopedic surgeon. Um, And she was desperate to get that joint replaced as soon as possible so she could get back to doing those things she loved. So her life had really been on hold while she was waiting for this cure. And I think stories like this particular lady's story really helped to illustrate the impact that beliefs can have on people's behavior and how that can really influence their OA outcomes, their osteoarthritis outcomes. But not only, I guess, their osteoarthritis outcomes, but when people stop doing those things that they really love and value that has really huge consequences on physical health, you know, general health, mental well-being, all those things as well.
3: Yeah, und- undoubtedly. And I don't, I mean, I obviously don't know the lady that you're talking about, but during any of that journey or trajectory of illness, was there any suggestion that anything else could occur, or any any empowering messages given about what could be undertaken by the joint and what she could actually do?
4: Well, in the case of this particular lady, no, and that was a a really aspect of these patient stories that really seemed to be missing a lot of the time, David, which was really quite, quite shocking to hear that people could have got so far in that journey and and really not had received those messages.
3: Yeah, yeah. Now, in some of the work that you've done, Sam, you've used the term impairment discourse. Can you just relay a little bit to us as to what that actually means?
4: Well, I guess when we came up with the impairment discourse, what we were really looking at, I guess, sort of going backtracking a little bit, is trying to find out, well, where do some of these beliefs and misconceptions come from? So we know that from health belief theories that have been well established in the literature, that what we believe about our health, what we believe about illness, really predates the onset of a a symptom of illness. So when someone first experiences a symptom of knee pain, for example, they're immediately going to draw on a set of beliefs to make sense of that symptom. So beliefs about what the pain is, what caused it, what the consequences of that symptom are, um, how long it's going to last and what they should do about it. And those beliefs are really formed by our previous experiences of, of, of our health by observing others maybe with the same condition or what we've heard or been told about that symptom the condition from the media, for example, and society more broadly. Uh, And evidence tells us that health professionals play a really large role as well in the formation and the perpetuation of of some of these unhelpful beliefs too. And what we've seen is that while some health professionals do explicitly endorse unhelpful beliefs, so things like you you should be avoiding exercise, you need to rest a painful joint. So we do know that some health professionals still do explicitly endorse those beliefs We also see that health professionals can implicitly endorse these unhelpful beliefs. And this can be done through the language that they use to talk about osteoarthritis. We have been recently interested in looking more at this language. How do health professionals talk about osteoarthritis? So we recently published a systematic review looking at all of the qualitative studies that have been conducted with people both experiencing the osteoarthritis and the clinicians. So this was around 60 studies that had involved interviews with patients or clinicians. And we extracted all of the participant quotes from these studies so that we could analyze the language that people were using. We were looking to see if we could identify discourses or ways of talking about osteoarthritis and consider how um, these ways of talking might influence people's behavior. And what we, we found across these 60 or so studies that were all done in different Western and non-Western settings, so quite diverse settings, was that um, the dominant way of talking was really what we described as an impairment discourse. Overwhelming majority was this impairment discourse. And according to this discourse, if I describe this a little bit for you, this discourse likens the body to, to being a machine. And it likens pain to being a broken part of this body machinery. So when we think of a machine, a machine generally comes with a used by date and people talk about their body in the same way. So the same joints as being part of a, a machine that has a used by date that can eventually wear out over time or break down. And after this point, it's not going to be safe to use anymore. And there's a real sense among people who use this discourse that while some people are going to use their joints you know, more than others over a lifetime, there's a sense of inevitability that one day there's going to be a use by date to this joint, to this machine part, this body part. Um, it is going to wear down. It is going to break down at some point. So people who use an impairment discourse tend to describe healthy knees as a well-oiled machine part that glides smoothly over joints that glides smoothly over each other and tend to describe osteoarthritis as worn out cartilage that causes joint surfaces to sort of grind and catch during movement. So they commonly speak about bone rubbing on bone and often use car analogies to explain the situation. So things like our patients might say, my knee is like an unoiled engine that's seized up or the cartilage is worn out like used brake pads in a car. But of course, you know, you wouldn't drive with a car with worn-out brake parts, that would be brake pads, that would be irresponsible, it would be unsafe. And the same sort of thing, we we think of our worn-out joints in the same sort of way. So it's irresponsible or unsafe to use these worn-out parts. But the other part with the the car analogy is that if we think of car parts are inert, so the same thing, bones can't regenerate. There's little that people can do themselves to, to repair this damaged joint surfaces. So um, other than to avoid activity, I guess, it, they, that people perceive is going to make that damage worse. So the really, according to this discourse, the only real solution is to seek out a mechanic who's going to fix that broken machine, who can you know, repair those bones and then resolve the pain. So people typically say things like, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, if something's worn out, you have to pull it out and put the new part in. David, more recently, we've been doing a study looking at analyzing video recordings of the clinical consultation with with people experiencing knee osteoarthritis who are seeking a joint replacement. And we see that both patients and clinicians overwhelmingly use this impairment discourse. And we think that by, by using these analogies of the body as a machine, of the car and the brake pads, that clinicians are really implicitly confirming these misconceptions about osteoarthritis. that pain is a sign of damage, that weight bearing should be avoided that, you know, there's a use by date to your joints and a joint replacement is inevitable. And what happens then if the clinician then tries to refer a patient to non-surgical care, that doesn't really make any sense to the patient. And without an explanation for how that's going to to help their situation, many are just going to return home and and wait it out until they're old enough or worn out enough to warrant a joint replacement. And I guess the, the problem is that this impairment way of thinking really goes back a really long time. It goes right back to you know, has the idea of the body as a machine has its roots in the Cartesian concept of dualism, you know, that the mind is separate from the body. We, we grow up thinking that pain is a sign of damage. So most people have no other frame to draw on when it comes to thinking about osteoarthritis, that we don't have any alternative way of communicating or thinking about our body in pain.
3: That's a fantastic explanation, Sam. And you used a word overwhelmingly there in the middle to describe how common or pervasive this is. And if, could you give me a rough sense of what you mean by overwhelmingly?
4: Mm. I said it and then I thought oh I shouldn't say that David because really you know a qualitative research the, the sort of research that I do is not generalizable so we are we, we look at small samples in my my research we try to get an interesting cross-section of people to try to get diverse clinicians and patients in our samples to really try to understand um, what is the the spectrum I guess of, of behaviors that are out there but really it's not representative so I shouldn't say overwhelming but certainly from something like our systematic review that we did is interesting because we see that by far the in in that sense the overwhelming majority of quotes that were included in our study that were really from quite diverse settings the dominant discourse was by far this this impairment discourse so in that sense we can get a sense of the spread of
3: this yeah yeah no I mean I'm, I'm definitely not disagreeing with you I mean when I hear my clinical colleagues talk about osteoarthritis, and I read x-ray reports, and I I listen to patients tell me about how other clinicians describe their illness. And, you know, the the pervasive terms that are used usually are the terms degenerative, uh, wear and tear, uh, bone on bone. Um, and so, I you know, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I do think it's pervasive. Um, and as you're alluding to, that obviously has massive consequences with regards the beliefs that become ingrained in the person that hears that message and their understanding of what types of treatments may or may not be helpful according to that particular belief pattern. Um, What's the converse? So we've spoken a little bit about the impairment discourse. What's the alternative here? What alternate discourse could we be having as clinicians that may lead uh, to altered behaviors, beliefs um, and potentially management for people that have osteoarthritis?
4: That's a great question. And again, you know, not everybody uses an impairment discourse. I think that's important to, to highlight here as well. So our research has shown that while, while the that impairment discourse is the dominant one, we've also observed a, a less dominant alternative way of talking and that is what we have called a participatory discourse. So, a participatory discourse focuses on what people can do to enable them to participate in, in, in valued life activities despite any pathoanatomical changes to their body structures. So, uh, again, as a bit of an explanation, people who use a participatory discourse tend to describe healthy joints as those which enable their body to remain active. So, joints can show signs of osteoarthritis, for example, but they can still be healthy if they are perceived to be healthy, if they're enabling their body to be active. So people who use this discourse really tend to shift that focus away from fixing any pathoanatomical changes to focusing instead on what they can do to maintain their, their health and maintain their participation in life. Our research has shown that people who, in that systematic review, we showed that people who use this discourse tend to see their joints as more than just cartilage and bones, but they tend to think of them more as structures that are cocooned in muscles and you know cartilage and muscles uh sort of cartilage and bones can't regenerate but potentially regenerate but but muscles can regenerate in 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 the view of the people who use this discourse so but, you know muscles are visible to the eye they're under voluntary control so by building up muscles uh, people perceive that joints can become stronger more able more healthy so you know of course you know we need to acknowledge that some people with musculoskeletal you know, pain with some people with osteoarthritis they are going to end up undergoing surgical interventions. But I think even when surgery is indicated, using more of a participatory discourse can really complement our management as clinicians. We can can provide guidance for recovery, for rehabilitation. It's really just that focus on what people can rather than can't do. And when we think about clinical practice guidelines, this discourse appears to be much more consistent with what those guidelines would be saying. So it's encouraging people with osteoarthritis to um, continue engaging in physical activity. It's consistent with uh, what we call the ICF, so the International Classification of Functioning and Disability and Health, which defines participation, so involvement in a life situation, as being that ultimate health outcome. So participation is the objective of our um, of our treatment rather than you know fixing or getting rid of any disease.
3: Now, Sam, that's obviously a a wonderful alternative to the uh, previous impairment discourse that you spoke about. Uh, You mentioned that it's much less frequent in the systematic review that you've done. Do you see ways that we could improve the proportion of discourses that are participatory as opposed to focused on impairment? And how might we go about doing that.
4: So I think there's a real opportunity here for clinicians to, to shift the discourse away from that impairment towards a participatory discourse. So what might this look like? I guess if we if we take the typical sort of, you know, this is very blunt and, and usually framed differently, but say, say we've got a clinician um, with a patient saying, you know, your pain is due to damaged joint structures, to cure your pain, we need to fix these structures. That might be the message that the, the patient is hearing in an impairment discourse. But if we shift that towards a more participatory discourse, we could be framing this as, for example, you know, because joint changes are, are common among pain-free people as well, other factors are important, um, and they're also important in explaining your joint pain. So many of these factors are influenced by the things that you have control over, things like strength, body weight, sleep, Mood. And let's make a plan to help you address these things. Rather than the imaging is bone on bone, the lining of joints is worn out, you need to limit that weight bearing, that loaded exercise through the knee. We could be giving the message that you know, graduated weight-bearing exercise is safe for people with osteoarthritis. Exercise is important for the health of your joint. You know, by building up your confidence to move, by becoming strong and active, um, we can really improve your pain. And in many cases, this can reduce the need for surgery itself. I think that, you know, saying these things to someone and then sending them off, you know, to exercise more is unlikely to be enough for most people. You know, I suggest that most people would need to be coached through this process. People need to learn how to exercise with pain control, how to build capacity to exercise up over time. Um, there are lots of people that are fearful to move. And this is we're working really closely with, you know, alongside a physiotherapist, can be really helpful, I think, to to help in that aspect.
3: So you've given us some wonderful examples as to alternate stars of communication that hopefully people pick up and improve on longer term. But I'm just wondering, systematically, and I guess particularly from the viewpoint of future health service system delivery, how do we go about improving that in a more grand scale? And is that based on focusing on the incoming generations of health professionals and focusing on graduate and undergraduate communication? Is it targeted towards professionals who are out there and have been out there for years and practicing potentially impairment discourses for decades? How do we best go about altering that? And, you know, for people, I guess, who are particularly interested in this space, are there resources that they can go to uh, that will help them to develop those skills or or particular styles of communication
4: absolutely look I think we all need to be taking responsibility to make this shift I think that this current way of talking and thinking about osteoarthritis this discourse is really harming some people some people are out there and this in itself is really causing a lot of distress um, and certainly not not helping them in any case and I don't think this is good enough We, we need to change the way that we speak and certainly i think that we all need to change but a logical thing is to try to get um you know trainees get undergraduates get in early and change this discourse during the the, those formative years of training to be a health professional but i see a real problem here too um being just the, the wider discourse it's not just what we're taught in our undergraduate degrees and and ongoing training that we do is also society more broadly. So I think we need to change this discourse on a societal scale. As I said, we grow up with this discourse as our default way of thinking. So I think that we really need to do a lot more to educate the public too, so that this is driven from the patients to the patients can expect more, we don't need to I think as a health professional, meeting those expectations of the patient and trying to speak the same language as the patient, sometimes we might know what we want to say, but we don't have the skills to be able to change that discourse. So we just flip into that default thinking and start speaking along and trying to speak the same language, if you will. Um, but that's where we get into the cycle of, of just perpetuating these unhelpful beliefs. So I guess that that knowledge for a clinician is one thing, but the second thing is is having the skills to be able to change that discourse. And there are a couple of great um, resources out there. David, one of them from the Curtin team over in WA, led by Peter O'Sullivan and also JP Kenyero has contributed to, to this space. They've got a great resource out in low back pain. I think it's a, it's a link www.lowbackpaincommunication.com and that has that's a great interactive video which models unhelpful and helpful ways of talking with patients so that can be really helpful from both the the clinician perspective but also for patients to have a look at of what they can expect good communication to look like with a health professional Um, So that has been done, as I said, in low back pain, um, but there are also similar resources coming out in um, the knee and hip osteoarthritis as well, which people can keep an eye out for as well.
3: Brilliant. No, so we'll include a link to that URL that you mentioned, Sam, in the the show notes so that hopefully people can dig a little bit further into that. Anything further on communication styles, discourses that I haven't spoken about that you think would be worthy of further elaboration.
4: Sort of going back to you know where I see this placed in the in the greater, I guess context of what we know about what you've spoken about, you know on this um, podcast as well, David, that I think that we often forget about this sort of more social perspective of osteoarthritis. So we know that there are many things that can affect the experience of pain and disability in people with osteoarthritis. Um, you know, the various do phenotypes that, as I said, you've spoken about in previous episodes. But I think that the social perspective really has been overlooked. But it is an important part of this Dixel puzzle, particularly because what people believe about, about their situation is modifiable. So we can change people's beliefs and this can really have potentially a really positive impact on their behavior and their experience of pain and disability. You know, changing beliefs alone May not be enough. But I, I, I think without addressing these beliefs, um, it's unlikely we're going to bring about um, behaviour change in our patients. So I think we need to give a lot more attention and focus to this more, um, I guess, social perspective of pain and disability. Um, and we do really need to be taking more responsibility
3: to change our communication as healthcare professionals. Completely agree, Sam. I mean, that without that, obviously, as you mentioned, this has a lot of downstream consequences, whether that be in terms of person's participation and engagement uh, in various activities but obviously potentially as a consequence of that ongoing psychological issues that may may ensue as well now sam what i might do if that's okay with you is just amuse you with a few rapid questions and just get your rapid rapid responses to these so favorite movie
4: I can't think of one off the top of my head, David, but my husband is a French speaker. He's from the French part of Switzerland. And we watch a lot of French movies. And I'd say my favourite genre, maybe if I can give you a genre rather than a particular movie, I love um, very slow-moving French movies, often with a long single shot in a single setting that that has some sort of funny commentary and social observations. That's my favourite sort of film. (laughs) Okay.
3: Fantastic. (laughs) Favourite book?
4: Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale.
3: Lovely dog or cat person it sounds like you've got a dog in the background
4: I do I'm sorry I hope you haven't heard him too much no
3: no I haven't heard him at all don't worry about it
4: <laughs> okay okay thank you I'm definitely a dog person I'm quite afraid of cats actually
3: yeah favorite quote
4: now I got this quote actually and and I and I thought about it um ahead of today I got it off a website of a a, a, a great I think she, she now has gone on to do a PhD but she was a consumer somebody who had experienced back pain herself and I am having I think it's Joe Balletta is her name and I got this quote off her website and it's um, by someone called Barry Wade I'm going to read it out to you it's called Truth so sticks and stones may break my bones but words can also hurt me stones and sticks break only skin while words are ghosts that haunt me Slant and curved, the word swords fall to pierce and stick inside me. Bats and bricks may ache through bones, but words can mortify me. Pain from words has left its scar on mind and heart that's tender. Cuts and bruises now have healed. It's words that I remember.
3: Very, very pertinent for today. That was wonderful. What's your favorite food?
4: Thai food. Do
3: you have a bad habit?
4: Yes, I don't know if I should say it. (laughs)
3: <laughs> this is a truth and honesty show. You just told us about truth.
4: Truth and honesty. Oh, gosh, yes, you're right. I'm a nail nibbler when I'm nervous.
3: Okay. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, where would you like to go on holiday, assuming there is no border disruptions?
4: The Swiss mountains.
3: What superpower would you have?
4: It would be something around waving magic wands and yeah. changing the way we communicate.
3: So. It's- a speech tool. Now, If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be?
4: About a strong, powerful woman, someone like Michelle Obama.
3: Wonderful. What would you do if money wasn't an issue?
4: If money wasn't an issue for research, I would love to roll out a big public health campaign to bust some of these myths around osteoarthritis.
3: Superb. Now, just because I want to get a little bit more into your brain, um, why do you do what you do, Sam? What motivates you?
4: I think probably a lot of it does come down to advocacy, David, I hear such really stories that really affect me of from patients, and they're simple things that we can change and patients deserve better. So I think it's that advocacy that pushes me to to demand better, um, to try harder to change things.
3: Well, I hope you continue to maintain it because you're doing incredible work. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Oh,
4: it would be the MythBusters. I think we those five ones I mentioned at the start. Pain is not a sign of damage. O A is not a one-way trajectory. Somehow, just billboards that are busting those myths on people are driving past and it's that that wide society that we need to be reaching so i, I like the idea of a billboard it would be a MythBuster, but it would also have links to further informational services because i really do believe that needs to be backed up with with the right support
3: superb well hopefully we'll see some of those soon and i don't have to travel to brisbane to see it <laughs> brilliant Well, Sam, that was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with me to talk about what's a really, really important topic that I'm really hoping a lot of our listeners get a lot out of, as well as any clinicians out there who are engaged and interested in this space.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me along, David. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
3: I'm hoping that you found today's content really helpful. I'm also hoping that many of you found the content somewhat Irrelevant to the types of communication that you may have been exposed to. But I'm not going to be at all surprised if many of you say that the terms bone on bone, wear and tear, worn out, degenerative, have been used quite a lot in the communication patterns that you've had with healthcare professionals. Here's hoping that they have an opportunity, or at least you have an opportunity, to impart to them some discourse that may be more participatory and positive around healthy aging and empowerment that leads to better beliefs, better behaviors, and better management choices. Really look forward to taking your questions about today's podcast topic and or others, and look forward again to speaking with you soon. Thanks so much for your continued support.
2: Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.